It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. For the last few years, the Congress of the time was dubbed the Do-Nothing Congress. Do you remember which Congress was the Do-Nothing Congress? It was everyone. Everyone got called that, usually by liberals, about Republican-controlled Congresses. But the labels were more or less apt. But this Congress, Republican-controlled, is intent on doing something. For instance, here's Chip Roy talking about the types of investigations they're going to do. And you bet that a part of our agreement was ensuring that a church-style committee under the leadership of uh, my good friend, the gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Jordan, and the Judiciary Committee, to target the weaponization of government against the American people. So the something that will be done from that is to generate some conversation about what I think will be a massive exaggeration. The government will investigate the government, not about nonfeasance, not about malfeasance, but about heterofeasance, activity that differs from the activity that the investigators would like to see. Fact, just yesterday, this do-something Congress passed their first bill. Here's CNBC with details. First day in session, the top priority for the new House Republican majority was to slash funding for the IRS. The GOP's inaugural bill would cut roughly $70 billion from the agency, money that was supposed to go toward updating operations, hiring more workers, and enhancing enforcement. Don't worry, it will still go to all those things because the Democratic Senate is never going to pass this bill. The funding was already appropriated in the Infrastructure Act. So the Republicans are again doing something, which is, they hope, at best generating discussion, but it's mostly going to be within their own silos about what good the Republicans are doing. These are two big bits of distraction, except for the fact that maybe you didn't even hear about the IRS funding cuts. You probably don't imbibe much of the chatter about how great it would be if we cut IRS funding. So it just seems confusing that anyone would think this would be so big an electoral winner that to spend day one on a bill that has no chance of becoming law is the best use of everyone's time. So as regular normal people who don't really want to cheat on their taxes or don't like the fact that extremely rich people get to cheat on their taxes, you know, the regular people, you might be maybe upset that that was the day one activity. You could look at the IRS funding bill as perhaps a thing to come, just like their weaponization investigation. But I say it's not that upsetting because did you really notice? Did it really affect you? Will it really have an impact on your life if you don't let it distract you? So sorry if I right here, right now, am the vector for that distraction. But I do want to make one point on IRS funding. Republicans even honest ones, are rightly worried about the federal debt. It's $30 trillion. Now, I could have said, if you weren't paying attention, you know it's 30. But I could have said, it's $43 trillion. Or I could have said, it's $9 trillion. And you would have said, that's big. So that gives you an idea of how huge, but also how abstract it is. And no one really has a plan to bring it down to $15 trillion. Notice I didn't say zero, just 15 or even 20. I mean, if there are boom times ahead, I could see... The debt not growing, it might shrink by a trillion here, a trillion there. I think we're saddled with it and it's going to have big costs. Do you want to know how much goes unclaimed because the IRS doesn't collect all it can or all it should? Over the last decade, $7 trillion. That's much more money than anyone credibly or even incredibly proposes that we can take out of the debt. $7 trillion. 
Yeah, it's over a decade. Yeah, the figures come from Janet Yellen, who's close to the money, but also politically motivated. And yeah, there's no way we could collect all $7 trillion. It's like saying, well, Target would make a lot more money if no one ever shoplifted. There's going to be some of that, except in Saudi Arabian targets. However, if even a part of this $7 trillion in unpaid taxes could be realized, it would do more on a core conservative issue than anything these so-called hardcore conservatives are doing. But no, they're cutting the IRS, the people whose job it is to collect the taxes. Except, don't worry, they're not cutting the IRS, which I guess means they're debt hawks, except not really, they're not. On the show today, I shall spiel about a visitor to the Golden Globe Awards who, if you didn't watch, you might not even notice that he was there. But it's kind of important geopolitically. But first, yesterday on The Gist, Chris Steyerwalt and I talked about his time at Fox News. Today, we're going to pick up the conversation with the end of his time at Fox. We'll also get into what was really to blame for January 6th, what Roger Ailes did right, and Steyerwalt's testimony in the Dominion Voting Systems versus Fox lawsuit. Chris Steyerwalt up next. So after the 2020 election, the decision desk, which Chris Steyerwalt was a part of and called it straight, called it right for Fox News that Donald Trump lost the election. Fox struck out against Steyerwalt. I told Chris that I was reading from a lawsuit, and in this lawsuit, Chris Steyerwalt was cited. He was quoted. Some of the things he said on the air to prove that Fox had to know that what it was saying, that the election was stolen, couldn't be true. Their own people were saying on the air that the election wasn't stolen. So I wanted to talk to Chris about this, but first uh, to establish there's no NDA, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a free citizen of these United States. This yeah. is true. Good. So let's talk about this Dominion lawsuit. Would the forces that you write about in your book, Broken News, would they be the, would the better angels of journalism, capital J, or just as we want it to be, would it be advanced or not if this lawsuit by Dominion succeeds against Fox? Well, I may not have an NDA, but I am a witness in that lawsuit. Uh, and so I am going to be careful around that because- I, there's an ongoing legal legal proceeding that I have been called to testify in, so I'm not going. I'm I'm not I'm not going to express any opinions about their lawsuit. Um, okay. I just think that I don't want. I'm I'm afraid of lawyers. <laughs> okay, let me ask you a point blank question. Answer it or don't answer it. Okay. Within the building, people you were talking to, was there a lot of robust discussion about? the idea of a stolen election is factually untrue? And did this robust discussion reach people who stated otherwise on the air? Uh, I don't, I, I can only, I will say this, and I that, that that's all I can say about this, which is no one I worked with on a regular basis took these claims seriously at all, right? These were laughable on the, these were risable I, would, I got in trouble for using the phrase lawsuits, schmawsuits, uh, to describe some of the legal actions early on. The idea that, you know, Zodiac boats full of ballots were being secreted ashore or that, you know, the uh, what was it eventually? The bam- look for bamboo fibers. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and an Italian satellite, yeah. Yeah, uh, which I thought was a new kind of Negroni, but as it turns out, something else. So I have very low expectations for the truthfulness of politicians. I have a zero expectations for the truthfulness of Donald Trump and his uh, core, and not his supporters, but the people his the people in the MAGA movement, MAGA Inc. No expectation of honesty. Um, but what I did not appreciate was how many normal Republicans or normal seeming Republicans would, out of a desire to grift or out of fear, go along with this monstrous activity, right? Um, this was really shocking to me. And that's how I missed it. The way that I missed it was I thought, well, Trump's going to lose. He's going to say I was robbed. And the Republican Party being glad to be rid of him will say, well, things happen. Sorry, Mr. President. And toodaloo and move on. What I did not appreciate was these cowardly, greedy Republican individuals who are like, well, I'm going to hedge on this. I don't know. Let's see. There's a lot of questions. I'm like, there ain't no questions, bro. If he's lost Arizona and Georgia, he's not going to win Pennsylvania and Michigan. Okay? Like, get over it. And these Republicans caved in and either tried to make a buck off of it or gain more status with Trump and go through. I then fast forward to January 6th, 2021, and the Republicans again had a chance to deal with Trump. Now, I don't care what your party is. I don't care how you you view the world, what your ideological lens is. If you believe in a system of divided government, of separate but equal branches, right? If you think that's the if you think that's cool, there's no excuse for not impeaching and removing Donald Trump on the 7th of January. And the fact that it did not happen. Now, there's a little blame for Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats because they should have rocket road a impeachment count over boom, day one. Here you go. You incited a mob, you set it up. Oh, and by the way, she also should have gotten Liz Cheney to write that impeachment article and take it over to the Republicans and say, I dare you to vote against this. Okay. And in that, that moment, that's a critique of her strategy and the process, but and, stand, and as yes, standing it is. against, yes. Yes. But most of the blame belongs to who? Mitch McConnell. Yes. Who knew it was right. Kevin McCarthy, of course, caved in instantaneously. Kevin McCarthy is like, well, I'm talking to him. He accepts that this is wrong. And then it's like, never mind. Actually, it's cool. Nothing matters. LOL. Mitch McConnell knew what the right thing to do was, and the right thing to do was to fast track the impeachment, and he should have called Nancy Pelosi. He shouldn't have waited for Nancy Pelosi. He should have called and said, we want to do it. How do we get this done? I want this done today. I want this done now. And if Donald Trump would have been impeached and removed within 48 or 72 hours of that attack on the Capitol, it would have been a hell of a lot better for the country. It would have been a hell of a lot better for the Republican Party. And they couldn't do it. So they couldn't do it after the election. They couldn't do it after January 6th. And now after Trump lost them a third straight election cycle in a row, maybe they're thinking like, maybe we're ready unless he's upset. Is he upset? Well, if he's upset, then maybe we'll change our minds. Okay, so you talked about when you started Fox, the ethic and the motto was fair and balanced. I wanted to ask you about the balanced part of it. There are a few ways to think about it. How I think about the balanced part is it's not really a virtue, balance in and of itself. Fairness is and truthfulness is, but I don't care that much about balance. 
uh, per se. There's another way to think about it, which is that internally, if all of our reports are balanced, that will brand us as something the viewers can trust, and that's worthy. And then there's a third way to think about it, which is, I think, how Fox generally thought about it. The rest of the media is so unbalanced. This gives us license to, you know, put our thumbs on the scale or maybe in individual cases be accused of being unbalanced, but you have to take into account the totality of news and where we are in that ecosystem. How do you think about the balance part of Fair and Balanced? Well, one of the reasons uh, that Peter Baker of the New York Times is a great journalist uh, is that he worked at the Washington Times for a while. He worked on the other side of the street uh, and at a, this you know, expressly right-wing newspaper. And it, I believe, and I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think it gave him a broader outlook on the media landscape to see stories and see points of view that are often overlooked in the groupthink, right? Um, There are lots of producers and reporters. There were lots of producers and reporters at Fox who were not Republicans, many who were liberals in their own lives, many who were Democrats in their own lives. That it's a job, just like there are Republicans who work at MSNBC. It's a job, right? And you try to do it that way. So when I tried to explain fair and balanced to producers or new reporters, I would I would say it this way. Every report, every story has to be fair. Every single one. You have to present all, all points of view. Uh, you have and you have to present them, oh, to to quote. Krauthammer, or to, to mention Krauthammer again, uh, after Charles passed away, uh, Brett Stevens, in his uh, appreciation of Charles, turned Charles's name into a verb, and he said, to Krauthammer is to make your opponent's case uh, better than they ever could and still defeat it. Uh, that was a Krauthammer. So even in opinion journalism, you can be fair. But in straight news, the idea being, you got to put all sides in there, and you can't do straw men. You can't say like, oh, and this is what the dirty liberals think. They think this. They want, you know, they want every class to be drag queen story hour. So you have to present the sides and, you have to, and that's fair. Balance comes in from something that you alluded to, which is that there is a group think and there is a way of thinking in the national media. And as I explained in the book, it's not intentional or most of it's not intentional. It's just a thing that happens when most of the people come from the same places and have the same kinds of backgrounds and have the same kind of worldview that go into elite newsrooms, right? They go to the same colleges. They come from the same places. But the news division at Fox News had the opportunity to do stories that weren't normally going to get covered uh, because there was a lot of money left on the table because of that, that worldview. And I think, that's a, I think that was a healthy and wholesome approach. So I want to ask you about the capital J journalist, which was a dismissive way to think about what the decision desk and the news side of Fox was doing. Do you think Fox management or the rest of Fox, the money-making part of uh, the Fox News channel, do you think they miscalculated in terms of how important it was to keep and respect the uh, sanctity of that division? Because it seemed to me just uh, taking on faith what you're asserting that the Fox News division was allowed to be a bona fide news division. I agree with that in general, by the way. But then at some point it wasn't. And then at some point it seemed like they jettisoned that idea and they were making a lot of money based on the fact that eh, Chris Wallace, maybe we'll give him a Sunday show, but we won't really respect 
uh, generally what he has to say or Steyerwalt or other people who were just saying factual things. So looking back, do you think that that was, I was wondering at the time, why are they doing this? Isn't this short-term thinking? It was such a mistake. And you know, the thing is, it is really unfortunate that Roger Ailes was personally such a monster. It is really, really unfortunate because here's the thing. There's a reason like Rachel Maddow went to him for advice about how to do it because he's really good at it, right? He was really good at cable news. And he did uh, some stuff that turned out not to be so great for the uh, Republic about fear-based, right? Like so many alerts, so many buzzers, so many things happening on your screen. You're like, what is happening? It's like nothing really, but just stay tuned. The world might end later. So the uh, all of that having been said, I believe that Roger was I did not understand what was happening. I thought, well, Roger is this, you know, cranky right wing old dude from Ohio. And he is the reason that, you know, because Roger would get on a hobby horse about, you know, Texas uh, textbooks or what. And you're like, geez, Louise. OK, like <laughs> we got it. We got it, man. And I thought that's how it was. Mm -hmm. What I did not realize was that Roger was also, and his personal problems uh, had eaten him. By the, by the time Donald Trump came to eat Roger Ailes alive, Roger Ailes was already mostly dead because of what we did not know was going on behind the scenes. So it made him really right pickings for Trump. But the Roger Ailes who I met and worked under uh, was a guy who, number one, as you said, left us alone substantially, right? Uh, Bill Salmon led the news. He was managing editor. I worked for Bill. Decision desk was a sanctum sanctorum. We were a lot. It was, it was that Roger understood that in order to have the decadent 80%, you had to have a good 20%, right? You had to keep the standards here. That's why people like Mara Elias. And I mean, we could go to of, of people that Roger's like, we need independents, we need Democrats, we need people who are respected in the mainstream. That Those those people he really liked because it gave him, as Susan Estrich has explained many times, this was some Kevlar for Fox to put on and say, say what you will, comma, but. Um, and we understood that. We knew how, we knew that's how it was. What Roger also was, was a lion tamer dealing with the talent, right? That when they would get out of line, he'd bench him and he could make it stick. And when they would do whatever. Now, by the time Roger was had done himself in and the Murdochs take over, Donald Trump could substantially program the network, right? Uh, not completely, but if he didn't like, no one was going to fire Lou Dobbs because Lou Dobbs said that Donald Trump was a greater president than Abraham Lincoln. Lou Dobbs was his advisor. No one's going to bench Sean Hannity because Sean Hannity goes on the stage at rallies with Donald Trump. Right. And Donald Trump is going to tweet about it, and he's going to tell people to go watch One America News. What are you doing? You can't touch these people. So things got, without Roger, things really, I, I had misapprehended Roger's strengths as I, I had not known the depth of his weaknesses, but neither did I know that what his strengths really were. So let me ask you, um, you've convinced me that it was a strategic a strategic misstep to jettison the Kevlar. But what about the ethics or morality of uh, being a part of it in the first place? Do you see it as fundamentally a function of propaganda that they had this truth-telling unit within this decadent 80%? Um, or do you see it another way? 
Well, I don't think that I, what did you say I was? I was, uh, what's the term? But uh, a bit of honey enthusiast. Which which term do you mean? No, no. The uh, for the eighty propaganda something. Yeah, were were you sir, or was the twenty percent of factualness serving an overall propagandistic function within the big picture of Fox News? Well, um, I don't. I'm sure that. There are, I'm sure, I'm sure that I could have done many things better in my career or done things differently in my career, but I can tell you that I don't have any regrets about it. Um, I did well, we did good work. I didn't lie. Um, along the way, things did change. And, uh, as you say, by the end, it was clear that this was not a wholesome place for me to be. They agreed <laughs> and, and they agreed. So they saved me the trouble, uh, and that's okay. Uh, and I do hope by the way that Fox gets back, gets back to itself. I would love if Fox, if the takeaway, and I think you're starting to see it as the consequence of the, uh, Republicans failure in 2022, that Fox is like, Hey, remember when we used to have this other thing? Cause I think you could, so you could say by me doing a good job, I made it possible for Bill O'Reilly to say things on television I guess. Right. That would be I mean, the argument. I don't, I, somebody, I'll tell you somebody what I think else, afterwards, but yes, that would be the argument. Somebody, somebody, somebody else would have, would have had my job for sure. Uh, and also again, when I started, when I undertook this, Bill O'Reilly wasn't that bad. I didn't agree with everything Bill O'Reilly had to say, but he wasn't that bad. Right. And Sean Hannity, as I said, it's not like anybody looked at Sean Hannity and said, this guy on the level. Uh, and I loved, by the way, working with Megan Kelly. She, she and I were were a great team. I loved working with her. That was fantastic. So I didn't have any, when I started at Fox, there were no ethical qualms, like, because I did not in at that time see Fox as fundamentally different from MSNBC or CNN. I didn't, I didn't see that Fox is something different and apart from those things. And one of the frustrations that I have had in this uh, talking about this book, and I've been really gratified with how well the book has sold and how many people want to read it, and it's great. It really makes me happy because I think it acknowledges the bipartisan understanding that something is really broken in the way that we get our information, uh, and that's good. I like all of that, but there is a thing that has happened with some interviewers, uh, not you, uh, but there's a thing that has happened with some interviewers that it's like, okay, Fox is really bad, and we're good, mm -hmm. right? And we're good, and you know, you're like, and and. I have had wonderful discussions with like Morning Joe and Anderson Cooper and people all over the place. And it's been great. And I'm really grateful. But some who I'm not going to name are like, but really, we're good and they're bad. And it's like, no, because if I say that, right, then we're doing the same thing. Then what you're doing, I had one guy that was like, we tell the truth on this show, not like those lie. And it's like, so what you want me to tell you is that you're a better journalist than Sean Hannity. Congratulations, sir. You've <laughs> done it. Yeah, yeah, you've done it. You've done it again. You, you've yeah. yet again bested Sean Hannity uh, for the Murrow Award. You're higher in the rankings uh, than, than SH. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thinking. Then what he was really signaling to his audience was what? We're smart and they're dumb. We're good. We're good over here and they're bad over there. We're not like those people. And what I really want people to do more than anything else, what I want people to do more than anything else is to remember that we all get it wrong a little bit. We all need to do better. And there are some, you know, I'm not saying like, 
let's give Alex Jones a chance. But what I am <laughs> what I am saying is that within the space of normal mainstream, and I do very much consider Fox part of the mainstream. Within the mainstream, we got to got to try to do better ourselves and not just feel smug and self-satisfied because we're better than somebody else. Chris Dyerwalt is the politics editor of News Nation, a contributing editor for The Dispatch, and the author of Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. Chris, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. That was great. And now the spiel. So many people are in this room here. There were like five people that, that kept me going for, you know, 20 years with these little jobs. The Golden Globes were last night. Jennifer Coolidge won for White Lotus. Ryan Murphy was honored for his achievements. How much more honored can one be than just being given millions and millions of dollars in an ongoing Netflix deal, which requires him to turn out uh, by the number thrillers based on every thought he's ever had or magazine article he's ever read. And tonight's award made me reflect on what a lifetime of achievement really is. You get there, I think, by being fearless. Perhaps not stunningly, the prize for Best Dramatic Film went to Steven Spielberg, the most successful filmmaker of his generation, for his film about becoming the most successful filmmaker of his generation. Turns out a successful film resulted in that. I always say that if I prepare something, uh, you know, it's going to jinx it, so I never prepare anything, and I'm, I, I'm really, really happy about this. If Steven Spielberg uh, became I'm, a rabbi, that movie might be called The Bibleman, but who would make it? But you know who else was there? A prior winner of an award, not a Golden Globe, but the 2015 award winner of Best Producer for the film Slugu Narudu. Yes, he's the Ukrainian actor and current Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. It is now 2023. The war in Ukraine is not over yet, but the tide is turning and it is already clear who will win. There were still battles and tears ahead. But now I can definitely tell you who was the best in the previous year. It was you, the free people of the free world. If you didn't watch the show, you might not have heard that Zelensky made an appearance. The headlines were about Spielberg and host Jared Carmichael's Taking Shots at Scientology, Eddie Murphy's Lifetime Achievement Award, big considerations over the institution itself. Basically, the coverage was the Golden Globes are back, and thank God. Yeah, also there's a war in Ukraine, which is going good, but thank God we've secured the Globes. Actually, this isn't one of those spiels where my point is, how dare we be entertained when there's serious stuff going on in the world? It's slightly more subtle than that. I was watching the Golden Globes, wasn't I, right? I wasn't monitoring troop movements in the Donetsk. My point is, we didn't, or it wasn't widely noted, that Zelensky appeared at the Globes because Zelensky is winning. He's doing well. It's not seen as a matter of urgency to rally behind this failed, tragic hero. I mean, the Globes, if nothing else, understand drama, and the drama of what's going on in Ukraine is a large ongoing drama, but generally trending towards good news for the Ukrainians. 
So this is why not only do the Golden Globes not get extra coverage for Zelensky, but this is also why you have headlines in the New York Times along the lines of Putin's effort to divide the West are falling flat. And this article rightly points out that there was a time when the Russians' hold on energy truly threatened Western unity. But now the West regards Putin's call for a ceasefire with eh, dismissal, which it deserves. It's probably propaganda, the West says, because the Russians are losing. The article treats Western unity as a causal factor in Putin's decline. They were so united, Putin was thwarted. I think the causation runs the other way. Putin's decline makes the West's unity easier. When fighting a seemingly powerful, maybe omnipotent foe, it's hard to stay unified. But when he's taking his shots and being forced back, unity comes a little easier. The best way to win is to win. And so I think of Trump. What is defeating Trump are his defeats. What I mean by that is when Trump was seen as powerful, no Republican dared cross him. Now, with his own losses and poor midterm showing, there's more of a freedom to strike out against him. What set him up for failure was taking him on as a legitimate enemy capable of being defeated. And then defeating him, and defeat him voters did. In each election that his ideas were on the ballot and also that his literal candidacy was on the ballot, he went down and he got weaker. And the weaker he gets, the more latitude there is to deny him the deference of the strong. So what I'm saying is the greatest act of hashtag resistance, take to the streets, wasn't done by anyone wearing a pussy hat. It was done by a 77-year-old from Delaware. Trump is not an idea or a unique power. He's an opponent. Defeat him, and then he'll be defeated. Wait a minute. He didn't stay defeated after 2020, did he? No, actually, he did. He literally did. He's not in power. And the very fact of defeating him drove him crazy and set him up for defeat in 2022 since he couldn't take it and decided to deny the election. Americans did not like that. That motivated Americans two years later. It was his defeat that caused his defeat that will, I think, probably keep him defeated. You know what kept Europe unified against Putin? Not bravery, resolve, character, esoteric traits, not any of that. It was military results. Putin lost on the battlefield, Zelensky's stature raised, and the idea of a fractured coalition against him became less realistic. Why fracture? We're beating the guy. Okay, I know my insight might sound tautological, but it's more subtle than, well, if you win, you win. It's more like you can't win if you give your foe too much credit. I see this in leftist movements all the time. Capitalism, if you're against capitalism, if you portray it as a totalizing force, warping all reality around it. I mean, maybe it is, but you'll never get a minimum wage of $15 if you think about it that way. But higher minimum wages are being enacted, not in the majority of states, but in 23 states. And those represent the majority of U.S. citizens. Same with climate change, the same with everything. You might be saying, yeah, but there's still the inexorable rise of average temperatures and ever-expanding inequalities in wealth and income. Guess what? Inequalities actually shrinking in America has been for a few years. Worldwide temperatures also not increasing. I mean, they're not at 1850 levels. But 2022 wasn't the warmest year in history, neither was 2021. It's called progress. Think of opponents as able to be defeated, and they may be. Maybe they won't, but think of them as incapable of defeat or give them more psychological or fundraising credence, and defeat becomes impossible. That's what Zelensky was a symbol of. Or rather, that's what taking Zelensky for granted was a symbol of. The fact that 
Putin's being defeated. I learned that from Vladimir Zelensky's relatively unremarked upon turn at the Golden Globes. And along the way, I learned about the magic of movies from a wiry young Jewish boy who we call Sammy Fableman. Take it from me as I star in a loosely autographical biopic, The Blabberpods, the didactic Mr. Blabberpod, for your consideration. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just producer and Joel Patterson's the Just senior producer. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Just is presented in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast. You want to advertise? Go to advertisecast.com slash the Just. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. Thanks for listening. Just do these three things. Pay your taxes. Mind your business. And keep Will Smith's wife's name out your fucking mouth!